Welcome to the Willie Jackson Experiment. I'm your host, Willie Jackson. Um, I got a really good show for you guys. Um, I don't know if you know this or not, but I actually am working at the whole meltdown site of Chernobyl. I actually have a little secret position there. You know, I don't want you guys to say anything, but uh, there's a there's a group on Facebook where um, we actually are all working at Chernobyl, and uh, it's just a little bit of fun to kind of you know go in there and you know uh, mess around, you know um, praise glory to Mother Russia and all that kind of stuff. Um, so. Uh, I don't know. I kind of hope that you enjoy this show. I didn't even know much about the whole accident or what actually happened or anything until I got this audio together. So I hope you guys like it, man. It should be pretty funny. This is about why I say what I say, do what I do. I did what I came to do. We'll find out, we'll find out. This is about why I say what I say, do what I do. Expression goes, the proof of the pudding's in the eating. We'll find out, we'll find out. Been a long day for y'all. I just finished the last meeting. I made it clear to President Putin. I told him it, corn pop was a bad dude. Bottom line is I told President Putin that we got hairy legs. After two hours there, we looked at each other like, okay. What next? You've heard me say this before again and again. I'm going to keep saying it. Come on, man. I made it clear. Well, I tell you what, I'm doing, I'm, I'm following the rules, man. This is about why I say what I say, do what I do. I did what I came to do. Get up. We'll find out. We'll find out. This is about why I say what I say, do what I do. Expression goes, the proof of the pudding's in the evening. We'll find out. We'll find out. Biden said he'd invade Russia. You know, I, that was a joke. This is not a kumbaya moment. Let's hug and love each other. Folks, look, I caught part of President uh, uh, Putin's press conference. I told him, come on, man. But I'm going to keep saying it. Come on, man. And, uh, and so it was, uh, it was kind of after, uh, 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 well, anyway. This is about why I say what I say, do what I do. I did what I came to do. We'll find out. We'll find out. This is about why I say what I say, do what I do. Expression goes, the proof of the in the evening. We'll find out. No, I думаю, что для всех очевидным является тот факт, что президент Байден. Ну, когда конкретно там завтра, послезавтра это вопрос коллеги на рабочем уровне определяться с составом этих делегаций. Не было никакой враждебности, наоборот, наша встреча происходила. Я думаю, ничего сложного не скажу. Это будет понятно. Это будет понятно. Торговые отношения, да. Еще говорили о сотрудничестве в Арктике. This is about why I say what I say, do what I do. I did what I came to do. We'll find out. We'll find out. This is about why I say what I say, do what I do. Expression goes, the proof of the pudding's in the evening. We'll find out. We'll find out. 35 years ago, the world experienced what was and still is the worst nuclear disaster in history. Reactor number four at the Chernobyl nuclear power plant had melted down, spewing radiation across Europe and creating hundreds of tons of radioactive lava, 95% of which remains semi-crystallized in dark basements to this day. And that's where most people's knowledge of the catastrophe ends. Well, almost four decades after most of the world has forgotten it, something 
is happening a few meters below Pripyat once again. What is it, and just how concerned should we be that Chernobyl's irradiated heart is still beating? The scope and scale of the disaster that was Chernobyl was something the world had never seen, as was the cleanup. Over 206 days, 90,000 people flooded the dangerous site to clean, catalog, and construct. The first responders were the first victims of fatal radiation doses. After those first bodies failed and robots malfunctioned, Soviet soldiers known as liquidators were brought in. These young men actually considered braving the invisible dangers because the Soviet Union had told them they could either serve two years in the concurrent Afghan war or two minutes shoveling debris off of the reactor roof. Most of these liquidators are now either sick or dead. The initial cleanup at Chernobyl was a monumental and costly effort that ended with the sarcophagus, a hastily made coffin of concrete and steel meant to keep radiation in and everything else out. It wasn't perfect, but it was never meant to be a lasting solution. Because just being in the vicinity of the failed reactor was dangerous in and of itself, nothing was constructed optimally. There were more than 1,000 square meters of cracks in the shelter, and no engineer would ever consider it stable. This was when something much more impressive was designed and eventually implemented. The new safe confinement. Started in October 2007, the New Safe Confinement, or NSC, would be a modern tomb to rival the ancient pyramids. It was to be built taller than the Statue of Liberty and wider than the Roman Colosseum. This would require more bolts than most US cities had people, and about half the Titanic's weight in steel. It was slid over the sarcophagus in late November 2017, with the promise of containing the ruins underneath for at least the next 100 years. The NSC would allow scientists inside to study the failure, keep radiation and radioactive dust from escaping into the environment any further, and jumpstart the cleanup process with cranes installed on the interior. The space between the ruined reactor and the outside world was even pressurized. In the event of an excursion from the sarcophagus below, a pressure gradient would keep the nuclear material inside, at least for a little while. Of course, there were 30 years between when the sarcophagus was constructed and when the NSC entombed it. During that time, nature wasn't following the suggestions of scientists. No, every time it rained, water would enter the leaky coffin and soak literally hundreds of thousands of kilograms of nuclear fuel and fuel-containing materials. This was a problem because water interacts with nuclear material in a very specific way. In pretty much every nuclear reactor you've ever heard of, water is critical. Inside of a nuclear reactor, it serves three functions. The first is to cool down fuel. The second is to get turned into steam by that fuel to turn turbines and generate electricity. And the third, germane to this analysis, is to act as a moderator of nuclear reactions. This last function is at the heart of what's happening at Chernobyl right now. Neutrons flying out from radioactive materials don't just smack into other atoms and instantly cause a chain reaction. It turns out that only certain kinds of neutrons do that, the slow kind. Neutrons come screaming out of unstable nuclei at 45 million miles per hour, way too fast for other atoms to grab onto them and continue on the chain reaction. 
Neutrons at one ten thousandth of that velocity are much better at that. And you can slow neutrons down this much by making them bump into a bunch of stuff. If you've ever played billiards, you've seen something pretty close to what's called an elastic collision, a perfect transfer of momentum. You may have even seen one ball slow down almost completely after a good smack. Looking at the math makes this easy to understand. If momentum is always conserved, then if both balls are the same mass, as you see here, then the only physical option is for one ball to slow down considerably or even completely. An effective way to slow down neutrons inside of a nuclear reactor, therefore, would be for those neutrons to hit as many similar mass particles in elastic collisions as possible and slow way down. This is exactly why you see water in a reactor. The hydrogen in water has mass just like a neutron. And being a similar mass, hydrogen slows neutrons way down after colliding to the point of much more likely chain reactions and the successful operation of a nuclear reactor. This is the reason why water is a great moderator of nuclear reactions. And all of this brings us back to an inaccessible basement below Chernobyl reactor number four. Along with the cranes, sprinklers, and entry points, the new safe confinement was outfitted with radiation detectors, and they've been blinking above the ruins of reactor number four for 35 years. Some spots are more hot than others. But scientists expected this to be the case. The rapidly constructed sarcophagus was leaky, and most of the uranium fuel at Chernobyl was still slumbering. This meant that any seasonal or heavy rain let water in, submerging the fuel in pitch black basements and moderating neutron emission. This had the effect of reigniting smoldering embers of the worst nuclear disaster in history. Like lightning, neutron spikes in the radiation detectors would come and go with the rain. But this never seemed to worry the scientists of the Institute for Safety Problems of Nuclear Power Plants, the only scientific institution that has been studying the state of the sarcophagus since the accident. And to quote the scientists there, Fuel-containing materials were fully wet, and dynamics of the neutron flux density was within seasonal trends due to the regular precipitation and condensate input, i.e., there were no potentially hazardous changes of the subcriticality of these nuclear hazardous fissile materials." End quote. And it was this institution, the ISPNPP, that has now pushed back against the flurry of breathless headlines implying some kind of imminent disaster at Chernobyl. Yes, something is indeed happening. This year, neutrons have been spiking detectors in an inaccessible basement room named 305 over 2. Yes, there are nuclear reactions pinging beneath Pripyat again. However, these stories are exactly why understanding the nuclear physics first is important. The nuclear scientists watching these spikes in the sarcophagus expected this to happen too like the expected spikes as seasonal rains dripped onto slowly deteriorating uranium fuel. You see, the new safe confinement was watertight, which meant that eventually, all that water that had gotten into that cursed place would evaporate. The best hypothesis scientists currently have is that as evaporation in Chernobyl occurs, without water to get in the way, neutrons are now moving through the nuclear material differently. The lava-like fuel has cracked and cooled over time and has become porous, full of holes. This change in structure 
combined with the receding water and the reflectivity of the surrounding crumbling concrete, is hypothesized to account for the 40% increase in neutron spikes. Those 45 million mile per hour neutrons are shooting out once again. Quoting the representatives of the nuclear power plant in Chernobyl itself, this situation had been predicted by the ISP-NPP before the NSC arch was slid over and was taking place due to the drying of over-moistened environment of black lava-like FCM. Currently, the sensors tracking the neutron flux density show constant values in all premises with no trends to rise, and the current levels do not pose threat of self-sustained chain reaction of fission." End quote. Of course, this will only put your mind at ease if you believe the predictions of nuclear scientists working at and for the Chernobyl nuclear power plant. Despite the headlines, what is happening at Chernobyl is currently cause for cautious study, not panic. These are embers of a 35-year-old catastrophe, not a looming second disaster. In fact, according to the physics, nothing like what happened in 1986 is ever likely to happen there again, as remaining water to moderate a meltdown would quickly boil away. And safety protocols like sprinkler systems that spray neutron-absorbing liquids are already in place. But make no mistake here, from monitors sealed underneath an artificial shield taller than the Statue of Liberty, we know that what melted into the earth below the Chernobyl nuclear power plant in 1986, what is beneath a sarcophagus 90 kilometers north of Kiev, is not dead and buried. Until next time. The Soviet Union had five of these huge power stations, but there is only one of these we all know about, Chernobyl. On this evening, there was no hint of the catastrophe about to unfold that would have a profound impact on the USSR and nuclear power around the world. At 1.23 a.m. during a safety test, the AZ-5 button was pushed. About eight seconds later, Reactor 4 exploded. Why did the emergency shutdown blow up the reactor? This is the central Chernobyl question. At the time of the disaster, Ukraine was one of the 15 Soviet republics. Chernobyl was in northern Ukraine, near the Belarus border. The centerpiece of these power stations was the RBMK reactor. The RBMK was a graphite reactor which had been powering Soviet growth since 1970. Chernobyl's reactor number four was only two and a half years old. These are the main systems of the RBMK design. The nuclear reactor produces large quantities of heat. To collect this heat, pumps circulate water in pipes vertically up through the reactor. Steam is collected in separator drums. The steam spins the turbine generators which power the electrical grid. The steam is cooled back into water from a large lake and fed back into the main circuit and the cycle repeats. It runs like this at full power for months on end. The buildings required to accommodate the systems were extensive. The components were located inside individual concrete compartments. The concrete vault around the reactor was 2.5 meters thick. The reactor was housed inside a steel drum. 
A central component of this story is graphite. Chernobyl's RBMK core contained huge amounts of it, which was essential for the nuclear reaction. When an atom splits, it releases neutrons at near the speed of light. These neutrons go too fast to split the surrounding uranium. Neutrons slow down as they bounce around inside the graphite until they travel slowly enough to split more atoms. The graphite is called the moderator because it moderates the neutron speed. Each graphite block has a hole down the center, which contains the pipes for the fuel channels and control rods. Water flows inside these pipes at high pressure. The uranium fuel is formed into these small pellets. Each pellet is extremely fuel dense and contains the heat energy equal to a truckload of coal. A reactor must have an on-off switch and a way to set the power level. This is done with control rods. These are made of boron, which is a very powerful neutron absorber. When the rods are in the core, they kill the reaction. With about 80% of the rods withdrawn from the core, the reactor runs at full speed. When the control rods were extracted, they left a space behind. The lower half of the control rods were made of graphite, which filled this void. Substituting boron with graphite was a sound design principle. The reactor was more efficient and it made the control rods twice as effective. The explosion was the result of a design error called the tip effect. This caused a momentary power spike precisely when the control rods were supposed to kill reactivity. The graphite displacers did not extend all the way to the floor of the reactor. The lowest 1.25 meters were cut short to equalize fuel burn. The base of the reactor was where things went badly wrong, but we will come back to this. The objective of the test was to simulate loss of grid power and verify if the flywheel effect of the turbines could power the water pumps until the diesel generators powered up. Three previous attempts at this test had failed. The test had to be performed during a reactor shutdown, but on this day, the shutdown was paused at 50% power for most of the day. This resulted in two crucial contributors to the disaster. One, the reactor became neutron poisoned, and two, the test was performed by the less experienced night shift, who had not been properly briefed. At 1am the shutdown began, but was paused because the electrical grid needed additional power, and Chernobyl Unit 4 had to make up the shortfall. After a 19 hour pause, the shutdown was permitted to continue. The new shift took over at midnight and put the reactor onto auto control to keep it steady at 22% power. Except auto mode was not designed for a poisoned core. Power plummeted to 1% before the test had been done. While the reactor was running at half power, it became poisoned with xenon gas which is a powerful neutron poison. A basic reactor rule is to never restart a reactor which has been poisoned because it is unstable. Xenon forms six hours later and interferes with the fine equilibrium of the nuclear reaction. The engineer in charge, Anatoly Dyatlov, was under pressure to do the test. 
he made the fateful decision to extract almost every control rod to bring the reactor back up to enough power for the test. This was like in a car applying more than full throttle to counter a jammed handbrake. One hour after the reactor stalled, the controllers had raised the power back up to 6%. The test was performed at 1.23am and lasted 40 seconds. The control staff had agreed beforehand, upon completion of the test, the AZ-5 button was to be pushed to complete the shutdown. The control staff reported all was calm at this time. You may be familiar with the flip cover and rotating switch, but this was the retrofit after the disaster. The button Leonid Toptonov famously pushed was most likely this one. Toptonov famously pushed was most likely this one. The control rods were in this configuration when the AZ-5 was pushed. It is frightening that there was just one rod fully inserted. At no time should the core have had less than the equivalent of 26 rods active, but on this evening added almost none because of the misguided attempt to counterbalance the xenon poison. The reactor had been pushed too far. The AZ-5 inserted all the control rods simultaneously. Reactor 4 was teetering on the brink and the tip effect would be the final straw. Water is a weak neutron poison. As the graphite displaced the water, a temporary power surge formed across the floor of the reactor. The boron would arrive too late. The rapid jump in power caused steam bubbles. Less water meant less neutron poison, more heat and more reaction. This was the feedback loop to destruction. There was now nothing stopping a reactivity runaway. The base of the reactor was overwhelmed and fuel channels vaporized. Reactor pressure was lost and coolant water flashed to steam, increasing reactivity across the core. Reactor 4, in that instance, was producing the energy equivalent to much of the Soviet electric grid. Reactor power surged to an estimated 20 times the maximum. We will never know because there was nothing left to do the measuring. The reactor drum and the building structure could not hold all that sudden energy release. The explosion blew the 2000 ton reactor lid through the roof and it landed back in the reactor pit on its side. The north face of the building fell away in the explosion and exposed the steam tanks and main pumps. Firemen spoke of warming their hands over the graphite which was lying all around on the ground. They were unaware they were exposing themselves to lethal doses of radiation. This was a heat and gas explosion. It was not an atomic bomb. And nuclear scientists get frustrated when Chernobyl is called one. This is the control room about 25 years later. Its equipment had been reused elsewhere while the remainder was scavenged by souvenir hunters and radiation stalkers. Soviet nuclear scientists were aware of the tip effect problem. There had been previous channel ruptures from the AZ-5 tip effect in Leningrad 1975 and Ignalina 1983. Design changes had been recommended. The RBMK was considered very robust 
and it was widely believed that an RBMK could not explode. No changes were made, and crucially the lurking danger was kept secret from operators. Had they known, they could have compensated for it in their decision making. The controllers took comfort in the AZ-5 emergency shutdown button always being there if they needed to shut down the reactor in a hurry. But it turned out to be the hidden detonator in the wrong configuration. The IAEA commission states that at below 50% power, the control instruments provided incomplete feedback. The low power dangers were not well described in the operating documentation and the procedures were sometimes contradictory. The operators would have been somewhat blind to what was going on inside the reactor and had to rely more on experience and intuition for control. To build inherently safer reactors, later designs including those in Russia utilize water as the moderator. Water is a far superior moderator. It added a vital additional automatic reactivity control and the core could be way smaller. As the water boils into steam, the moderator disappears, and there is an instantaneous drop in reactivity. With higher grade uranium, water can be used as the moderator. Graphite was a favored moderator in earlier reactors around the world for low grade uranium. The switch to water happened when uranium enrichment technology had advanced to the point where the large quantities required could be produced. With perfect hindsight, it is so easy to be critical of a time when the science was in earlier stages and there was minimal computer modeling. Man can dream up the most amazing things, but ultimately it is humans who are responsible for the things going wrong. We will never really know what happened in the control room that night, and tragically, most who were there paid with their lives as they heroically scrambled to deal with multiple other dangers that could have put the other reactors at risk of meltdown and a wider disaster. It's natural to focus on the recklessness of a few, but this is as much a story about the epic bravery and personal sacrifice of so many. Occasionally humans fail, but mostly we succeed. Thank you for watching. If you enjoyed this, please add a like and subscribe to my channel to be notified of more videos like this. After the nuclear fires at Chernobyl were finally controlled, a feat which took nine full days, workers scrambled to contain the invisible dangers of the failed core. In May of 1986, construction began on the sarcophagus, a gigantic concrete enclosure built to seal off the radiation from the outside world. But the ruins would never be entirely contained, even after the installation of a much larger tomb in 2016. The Chernobyl sarcophagus is outfitted with access points, allowing researchers to observe the core and workers to enter. In December of 1986, researchers discovered the elephant's foot. It was a couple of meters across, over 4,000 kilograms, and put out enough radiation to prevent anyone from getting near it for more than just a few seconds. But despite the dangers, we have pictures like this one of the deadly mass. How? Well, from a safe distance, workers, or liquidators as they were called, rigged up a crude wheeled camera contraption and pushed it slowly and from around a corner towards the elephant's foot. This photo, almost never seen in discussions of the elephant's foot, was taken in 1990, four years after the incident. 
The slide the photo is on was given to a Dr. Bill Zoller at the University of Washington's Department of Chemistry. The caption reads, quote, This is a slide I obtained from the Russians. It shows what is called the elephant's foot. The Russians obtained this picture by sending a man down there with a camera. He took one picture and then came back up. I was told that he died from the radiation he had received. This picture cost a man his life. End quote. When this photo of the elephant's foot was taken, 10 years after the disaster, the elephant's foot was only emitting one-tenth of the radiation it once had been. Still, merely 500 seconds of exposure at this level would bring on mild radiation sickness, and a little over an hour of exposure would be fatal. Another photo, a timed selfie by Russian nuclear inspector Artur Korneyev, is arguably the most famous and most disturbing photo of the elephant's foot. According to an investigation by Atlas Obscura, the ghostly image of Artur is likely not due to anything spooky, just the shutter speed, as is the time-lapse-like streak from the flashlight. But the graininess, the grittiness you see in the photo, that's from the radiation. Over time, the elephant's foot has decomposed. It has puffed dust while its surface cracked. But more than 30 years later, it is still quite dangerous. In 2001, levels were measured that would give you a lethal dose of radiation in under 60 minutes. Extrapolating from how radiation sources degrade over time, today that deadly limit is probably a few hours. And today, the elephant's foot, once nuclear lava eating through the corpse of Chernobyl, is still hotter than the surrounding air temperature and environment thanks to the radioactive heat pulsing inside of it. Born of human error, continually generating heat in the basement of a failed power plant, the elephant's foot is still melting into the base of Chernobyl, albeit very slowly. If it hits groundwater, scientists still worry that it could trigger another explosion like the one that killed the core and lifted four million pounds like it was a paperweight, or it could leach radioactive material into the water that nearby residents drink. Long after bleeding from the core, this unique piece of waste continues to be a terrifying testament to the potential dangers of nuclear power, even though nuclear power as a whole is extremely safe. Until it is finally removed, if it ever is, the elephant's foot will be there for centuries, sitting in the dark basement of a concrete and steel sarcophagus, a symbol of one of humankind's most powerful tools gone wrong. Until next time. Thank you so much to the Very Nerdy staff at the facility for their direct and substantial support in the creation of this here video. Today especially, I want to recognize research assistant Jenny Dowd and visiting scholar Patricio Norman Buena. If you want to join the staff, if you want to drape on a silky white lab coat, talk every day with me on Discord, get behind the scenes stuff, and get episodes early, you can go to patreon.com slash kylehill and join the facility staff today. And hey, if you support us just enough, you get your name on ARIA here, each and every responsibility for this one. So I know it's going to sound like I'm tooting my own horn or reading into it, but uh, my essay in 2013 about the elephant's foot on Nautilus got millions and millions and millions of views, the most read thing they ever had on their website. And I believe, looking to Google search results and trends, that bringing the elephant's foot back into public, public consciousness was kind of my doing. So I'm part of the legacy too, which is fine.